Hello and welcome to the MTP Connect podcast. I'm Caroline Jewell. Translational research is often described as bench to bedside. It's the effort to create new therapies, medical procedures or diagnostics to improve our health outcomes. So today we're going behind the scenes with TIA, or Therapeutic Innovation Australia, a national consortium of research facilities available to Australian researchers to take their discoveries from the lab to the clinic. As Australia responded to the spread of COVID-19 recently, some of TIA's facilities have had to pivot quickly to support new research into treatments to combat the coronavirus. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome TIA CEO, Dr. Stuart Newman, and Dr. Marion Sturm, Facility Director of the Cell and Tissue Therapies WA, a consortium member. Also joining me today is MTP Connect's Managing Director and CEO, Dr. Dan Grant. Welcome, Stuart and Marion, and welcome back, Dan. Thanks, Carol. Great to be here. Stuart, um, your network brings together 14 national facilities across three areas, and they are small molecules, biologics, and cell and gene therapies. Can you tell us more about the TIA? Certainly. So TIA is a not-for-profit, limited-by-guarantee company that manages a funding scheme on behalf of the Department of Education, Skills and Employment under the NCRIS strategy. Now, NCRIS stands for National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Strategy, and it is a network of about 23 projects, uh, each of which are aligned with a particular scientific um, area of research, for example, urban research, geology, marine science, uh, and such like. So, for example, there's a group of facilities that falls under imaging. Um, so, TIA runs a project, uh, as you say, that um, encompasses uh, three separate capabilities. And in each case, we provide soft infrastructure funding or operational funding to, in, to support key salaries at each of these facilities. Now, the concept there is that if TIA through NCRIS are providing support for these salaries, when a researcher from outside the facility wants to access a particular capability, um, we are in effect covering the cost of the salaries. So it does reduce the financial, it, it, it lowers the financial bar to access for these, access these facilities. And Stuart, are the facilities open to industry to access as well as academic groups? Absolutely. They are very much open to small to medium enterprises and industry. Uh, they are open to research generally, and it doesn't really matter for uh, where it comes from. International researchers are also welcome to access these facilities. Since COVID-19 has emerged globally and in Australia, can you tell us how have TIA's research facilities been impacted and are you still open for business? Uh, the National Biologics Facility, which is one of our uh, consortium members, has been very heavily involved, almost exclusively uh, given over its whole capacity to working on a, um, a vaccine for COVID-19 um, developed from IP discovered at the University of Queensland and funded by an international group called CEPI. And this is in Queensland, Stuart? This is at Queensland. It's at the University of Queensland's um, Australian Institute of Bioengineering and Nanotechnology. This is where the research is being managed, but our 
Victorian node of our biologics facility is located at CSIRO at Clayton, and they are also very heavily involved in the project in terms of the scale up of manufacturing of clinical trial material. And I can report that they are, they are well advanced in terms of creating a batch of clinical material, and they are looking to start the phase one clinical trials as early as July of this year. But in terms of impact of COVID-19, the consortium members remain largely open for business. There's been some impacts because of social distancing, the number of staff in labs has been uh, reduced in some cases, but many of the facilities themselves are large enough to accommodate this distancing. And many have been open for business throughout this, uh, throughout this entire period. And Stuart, has any of the research actually had to stop? Yes, we have had some projects that have had to be delayed. I'm not aware of any, luckily, that have been cancelled or completely removed from contention. Um, we are seeing in some areas, for example, the vaccine project in UQ, that has really taken up a great deal of capacity and that has caused delays um, in access by other projects, which is inevitable. Today, uh, we've got Marianne Sturm on the podcast, who actually is the facility director of the Cell and Tissue Therapies WA facility at the Royal Perth Hospital. Can you tell us what goes on there at the facility at the, at the Royal Perth? Our uh, facility is um, embedded in Royal Perth Hospital, so we um, support the treatment of patients here. So we're right at the clinical interface. So we do a whole pile of routine manufacture to, so to enable clinicians to deliver cell and other blood type products. But um, we've been an ANCRIS uh, centre, supported by ANCRIS since 2008 for translating health discoveries. And our real skill is in the manufacture of cell therapies. And also we do sort of some basic uh, type research and R&D around um, new, new and emerging products. So yes, because we're at that clinical interface, we can both manufacture and facilitate clinical trials. And the lab is able to do this because it's highly accredited. It holds um, TGA accreditation and international accreditation so that the products that are main, made here or manufactured here um, meet regulatory standards, so that basically ensures the safety of what we actually do. If you would like, I'll tell you a little bit about the last couple of months, what's happened to us and how COVID's actually affected our business. Because we work in the hospital, life doesn't stop for us. We still have to deliver service. And so our routine service has continued. So almost all staff have continued to come to work. The only staff that um, have stopped coming to work are those that were high risk of, um, you know, they had other medical conditions that meant if they got the infection that would affect them greatly. And these were quality staff and administrative staff that could actually work from home. The rest of the staff have continued. and But we basically implemented teams. We were concerned one of us would get infected and it'd wipe out our ability to deliver the service. So we then took our research staff and we train them in um, good manufacturing practice so that we could backfill, essentially. The other uh, critical contingency thing we had to worry about was some of the supplies and materials we use to manufacture both for uh, the clinical trials and for the routine uh, clinical care. 
were starting to dry up because a lot of it came from America. So we spent a lot of time doing contingency planning, trying to calculate what we would need for the next six months, locate whatever supplies were in Australia and then immediately try and get them out of the states and, and other jurisdictions. As I said, we support a lot of clinical trials and manufacture for clinical trials. So what happened, as you referred to before, there was a clinical diversion. So those clinical trials were actually halted Yes. And they weren't they weren't ceased. They were just put on hold because the clinicians uh, around the WA hospitals and 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 even the other Australian hospitals that we support, they could not manage the crisis of COVID and still perform well, clinical trials. So that all went on hold. But now now with the crisis um, being uh, so effectively managed, the trials are back on again. Miriam, so, so you mentioned that, that the presence of COVID and then flattening the curve happened very rapidly um, and it had an impact on you delivering your trial. Um, at the same time, I think it's fantastic that there's been this level of coordination and collaboration across the healthcare sector, the state governments, federal governments and industry. C- can you tell us a little bit about, about where you think you'll go during the recovery from COVID and, and what do we need to do in terms of the med tech and health sector to make sure that we're ready for the recovery as we do come out of COVID-19. Um, what, what are you doing in your facility? And maybe Stuart can, can also comment in terms of how TIA is going to have to change the way they, res- they work in the new environment, but also what do we need to do as a country to make sure that, that facilities like TIA or, or groups like TIA and the facilities they support are ready for the next public health crisis that comes to Australia? I think one of the reasons we could actually respond to COVID-19 was we actually had a product ready in the freezer that we could divert. So basically the product that we were using for the lung transplant patients, we had actually manufactured a lot of the cells that was a a phase two randomised trial. We had those products manufactured and ready. So we then considered the ramping up basically and how much, what we would need to ramp up. So we put a lot of planning into that and we would have been ramping up if we had patients. And we also thought about when you give the cell therapies, there's not a lot of knowledge around dosage. So it was a bit of, you know, it's a bit of feel your way along. So we were doing um, calculations on, you know, expected number of patients um, how many we could treat in six months, how much we, how much of the product we could make, because it, it's quite a long process actually making the product. And as I said, it meets all the regulatory standards, so there's a lot of testing that goes on after you've made it. So you just can't whip it up in a week and start dishing it out to patients. Like it's got almost like a three-month sort of period of, of from starting to ending up with the product. So we, we had to do all those calculations. Stuart, am I... Co- come back to you and ask specifically how the overall TIA facilities will be impacted post-COVID or by COVID as it relates to university funding, international students no longer coming to Australia during this pandemic, and, and we know that universities' budgets have been significantly impacted. Will that impact TIA and your network of facilities, given many of these facilities are embedded within universities? I think it's difficult to say at present. Um, 
what I do note about a consortium is that generally they are either close to or at capacity now, um, and in many cases oversubscribed significantly. So what may happen is that as um, research activity, if that reduces in terms of less uh, availability of funding, then we might see um, less access or less people seeking, less researchers seeking access to the facilities. So that may have an impact on their, and their, on their revenue and may have an impact on their ability to maintain a, an expert staff complement. I think how we're responding to that is that we are doing everything we can to make, make sure that the facilities remain able to maintain the capability and the capacity that they, that they have. Because as we move out of COVID, this is going to ramp up again. And we don't want to get into the situation where we have downsized or, or reduced uh, capacity or capability in any facility. And then all of a sudden the tap comes on again or we slowly recover. We need to be able to, we need to be ready for that. Can I, oh, can I just butt in there, Stuart? I think the one of the main things from the funding from the TIA is the maintenance of highly skilled staff because one of the reasons why we were able to respond is that we had um, some of the staff supported by the TIA, which might not have been involved with clinical manufacture, but we very they had a really good understanding of good manufacturing practice and quality. And so we could quickly mobilise them to supporting the manufacture of these um, clinical products. So that I think the infrastructure in the staffing is really important for the facilities to respond to any type of situation that that requires manufacturing of clinical products. Certainly, absolutely. And following on from that, we have a small scheme where we support training for the staff that, um, for the staff at facilities that we support. And we consider that's essential to basically add value to our current investment. We're investing in people, we're investing in the soft infrastructure and the, the brains and the expertise. And it's important that these staff are supported in terms of uh, training. And so we have a small scheme where we support training by facility staff as well. That is going to be critical going forward to making sure that we can retain the expert staff that we've built up. And maybe it's an opportunity to help recover this focus on COVID uh, research and possibly finding some kind of solution for Australians and, and other nations around the world. I mean, it could be part of our recovery. Yes, I think there's a real opportunity to the uh, leadership in the space. Australia has already been quite forward in international collaboration. And I think there's a real opportunity to emphasise how good we are at discovery. And it's, it's been terrific to see with the development of the vaccine at University of Queensland, how few projects around the world the CEPI group is funding. And it's a real indication of how much we have to offer as a nation and as a sector to a global effort like this. Stuart, have you spoken to Professor Trent Munro? I know he is a facility director of, of the Biologics Node in, in Queensland, isn't he? And obviously part of that team developing that vaccine. Yes, yes, Trent and I speak quite frequently. 
he is very much focused on on the vaccine at the moment, but he's also involved in quite a few other schemes, including some funded by the MRFF. There was there was announced a few weeks ago um, some funding from an ovarian cancer mission, and what it and what this means is that there is at the moment. National Biological Facility is very much focused on the vaccine, but of course, as soon as that activity um, reduces, then they are—they have many, many other projects almost backed up, ready to go. So it's important that we can maintain and, and possibly even increase the capacity. As soon as they move on, as soon as the the vaccine enters later clinical trials, the the facility will be able to turn its talents to to other diseases as well. So uh, it's great to learn more about the TIA, its involvement in COVID-19 research, but also how it supports Australia's translational research efforts to find new therapeutics to benefit human health. There's obviously a lot going on in this space and it's going to be part of our recovery as we emerge from COVID-19. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Stuart Newman and Dr. Marion Sturm and my co-host, Dr. Dan Grant, for joining me today. This was the MTP Connect podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find our podcast on all the usual podcast platforms. Please give us a rating, leave us a fantastic review and subscribe to hear more great stories from the MTP sector. Until next time.